The Book of Psalms stands out in both religious and literary traditions, celebrated for its profound spiritual depth and unparalleled poetic beauty. James Anderson would have approached it with an eye for its artistry and a heart for its divine inspiration. The Psalms are a collection of lyrical poems that articulate a wide spectrum of human emotions in the context of divine interaction, ranging from despair and longing to joy and thanksgiving. Anderson would likely emphasize that the Psalms serve multiple functions. They are historical records of the Jewish people, intimate reflections of individual souls, and prophetic announcements about the Messiah and future events. This multifaceted nature allows the Psalms to speak universally, addressing the varied experiences and spiritual needs of individuals across time and space. They offer comfort and sorrow, guidance in moral quandaries, and expressions for worship and praise. The Psalms' literary excellence is undeniable, with poetic devices that enrich their emotional and spiritual impact. Anderson would have admired their lyrical qualities, which have garnered acclaim even from those who view them purely as literature. Yet, it's their spiritual essence that transcends their literary beauty, making them a vital part of religious life and personal devotion. The Psalms provide a window into the human soul's deepest yearnings and struggles, offering words for what often feels ineffable. In summary, Anderson would have presented the Book of Psalms as a profound fusion of human experience and divine revelation. Its content guides the devout in times of turmoil and joy alike, offering a pathway to a deeper understanding of God and oneself. Its influence is immeasurable, not only in religious circles, but also in the broader realms of culture and literature, making it a timeless testament to the human and the divine. Moreover, Anderson provides a detailed overview of Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, accentuating its significant place among religious texts due to Calvin's commitment to ascertaining the Holy Spirit's intent through a literal and grammatical understanding of Scripture. Unlike the mystical and allegorical methods that dominated before him, which often relied on the interpreter's imagination to find hidden meanings, Calvin focused on the literal sense of the text, advocating for a methodological approach to Scripture based on the principle that understanding the grammatical structure is foundational to theological interpretation. This approach, rooted in the work of Melanchthon, marked a significant shift toward a more disciplined and textually grounded hermeneutic. Anderson commends Calvin's diligent examination of the Hebrew text and his intent to understand the original meaning of the Psalms, affirming the importance of this principle in biblical interpretation. However, he also asserts a limitation in Calvin's work, his reluctance to fully explore the Psalms' deeper prophetical, evangelical, and spiritual meanings. According to Anderson, while Calvin does occasionally acknowledge these aspects, his strong aversion to the mystical and speculative interpretations of his predecessors leads him to an overemphasis on the literal sense. As a result, Calvin's expositions, though rich in grammatical and historical insight, occasionally lack the spiritual depth and evangelical warmth that could be derived from a more nuanced approach, considering the Psalms' multifaceted layers. Despite these critiques, Anderson notes Calvin's commentary is not just academic, but also practical aimed at edifying readers by applying the Psalms to Christian living and doctrine. Calvin integrates critical analysis with practical exposition, highlighting key evangelical truths, particularly justification by faith alone, and the necessity of personal holiness. Anderson's analysis thus presents Calvin's work as a seminal text in biblical scholarship, marked by a commendable shift towards a more text-focused approach, but also notes areas where Calvin's caution against mystical interpretations may have restrained the commentary's spiritual depth. Furthermore, in his preface to Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, Anderson extols Calvin for his meticulous approach and astute judgment in biblical interpretation. 
Calvin is characterized by a discerning and deliberate method, favoring interpretations grounded in thorough analysis and evidence. Anderson indicates Calvin's habit of weighing various interpretations against each other, often preferring one, but without entirely dismissing others unless the evidence is strongly against them. This nuanced approach reflects Calvin's commitment to capturing the true essence of Scripture, even when it means foregoing popular or traditionally accepted interpretations. Calvin's work on the Psalms is particularly notable for its longevity and relevance. Despite the advancements in biblical scholarship and the emergence of numerous commentaries over the centuries, his insights remain profound and applicable. Anderson attributes this enduring quality to Calvin's intellectual rigor and deep understanding of the biblical texts. Calvin's interpretations are not just products of his time. They transcend his era due to the universal qualities of thoroughness, integrity, and respect for the scripture's inherent message. In addition, Anderson lauds Calvin's integrity and impartiality. Calvin approached the scriptures with the mindset of a learner, seeking to understand the divine message rather than to confirm his own preconceived notions. He was particularly cautious about not twisting scripture to fit doctrinal biases, a practice that Anderson sees as commendable and exemplary. Through examples, Anderson illustrates how Calvin would set aside or reinterpret texts that others might use to support particular doctrines, prioritizing a faithful and reasonable interpretation over doctrinal convenience. Overall, Anderson's assessment paints Calvin as a theologian with a robust intellectual framework, characterized by judiciousness, honesty, and a deep commitment to understanding the Word of God. His methods and insights set a high standard for biblical interpretation, combining intellectual rigor with a reverent approach to the divine text. Further, Anderson extols John Calvin's work, particularly maintaining Calvin's deep understanding and mastery of the Hebrew language, an essential element for interpreting the Old Testament. Despite the criticism from his contemporaries who doubted his knowledge, Anderson points out that Calvin's commentary on the Psalms is a clear testament to his precise and thorough grasp of Hebrew. Calvin's approach isn't just about translating. It involves critical engagement with the text, where he often aligns with the conclusions of modern exegesis through his nuanced understanding of Hebrew words and their meanings. Anderson notes that Calvin's erudition extends beyond language, drawing from a wide spectrum of knowledge, including philosophy, history, and classical literature. His commentary is enriched with references and insights from these fields, demonstrating how secular knowledge can illuminate sacred texts. However, Calvin's academic prowess is always presented with humility, aimed at elucidating and reinforcing the scriptural narratives rather than showcasing his own learning. The most distinctive aspect of Calvin's commentary, as Anderson observes, is its profound piety and the reflection of Calvin's personal religious experience. It's evident that Calvin's insights come from a place of deep faith and personal devotion. His understanding of the Psalms is not merely academic, but is also deeply spiritual, resonating with the emotional and spiritual struggles and joys that the Psalms express. Calvin's own life, marked by trials and tribulations akin to those of David, lends him a unique empathy and insight into the text, allowing him to elucidate the Psalms with a heartfelt understanding. This makes his commentary not just a scholarly work, but also a spiritual guide, reflecting a life lived in devout pursuit of godly wisdom and understanding. Besides, the work in question is an English translation of the Psalms, meticulously derived from its original Latin version and cross-referenced with a French edition personally revised by the author, presumed to be John Calvin. The French edition, printed in 1563, is particularly notable for its careful revision, regarded almost as a new translation compared to the Latin text. The translator has relied primarily on the Latin text, while using the French version as a critical tool for clarifying and expanding upon the original text's meaning, 
Calvin, a native French speaker, is recognized for his elegant Latin prose. However, his French translations provide a more nuanced and detailed expression of his theological insights. In translating to English, the translator has noted that the French version occasionally offers additional sentences or clauses not found in the Latin, enhancing the clarity and depth of the text. These expansions, often inserted at various points within a sentence, address the occasional obscurities of the Latin and introduce additional thoughts or clearer expressions. The translator has conscientiously included these additional elements from the French into the English translation, marking them with footnotes for reference. The translator's methodology is guided by a commitment to accurately represent the author's original meaning and style. This involves a delicate balance between a literal translation, which might be too rigid, and a more liberal approach, which might stray from the original text. The goal is to produce an English version that remains true to the spirit, nuance, and theological depth of the original psalms while being accessible and engaging to the modern reader. In doing so, the translator aims to faithfully convey not just the words, but also the rich theological and literary heritage embedded in this pivotal biblical text. Additionally, Anderson delves into the nuances of Calvin's translation of the Psalms, noting the deliberate choice of Calvin's version over the traditional English Bible. He clarifies that Calvin's translation is often closer to the original texts and presents the sentiments of the Psalms with greater accuracy and effect. The distinction lies in Calvin's approach to translation, which sometimes diverges from the conventional renderings, but strives to illuminate the original's intent and emotional depth. Anderson reiterates that while Calvin's quotations are mostly aligned with the English Bible, there are critical instances where Calvin's own translation is necessary to uphold the argumentative and theological integrity of the commentary. Anderson's discussion then transitions to the English translation of Calvin's work by Arthur Golding, published in 1571. He introduces Golding as a notable figure in the Elizabethan era, recognized for translating a wide array of classical and contemporary works into English. Golding's translation of Calvin's Psalms is among his many contributions, reflecting his scholarly dedication and linguistic skill. However, Anderson critiques this translation for its now obsolete language, suggesting that the evolution of English over the centuries has rendered Golding's version obscure and sometimes unintelligible to modern readers. This obsolescence, Anderson contends, prevents contemporary readers from fully appreciating Calvin's psalm's nuances and theological depth. He laments that Golding's otherwise commendable effort might lead readers to underestimate the original work's value due to the outdated language that pervades the translation. Anderson's evaluation implies a need for a more contemporary translation that preserves Calvin's rich insights while making them accessible to today's audience. In doing so, Anderson repeats the enduring relevance of Calvin's interpretative work on the Psalms, advocating for translations that bridge historical linguistics with modern comprehension. Also, Anderson's introduction and notes to Calvin's translation of the Psalms, as part of the Calvin Society's translations, serve as a comprehensive guide to Calvin's interpretive genius and the broader biblical scholarship landscape. Anderson aims to clarify Calvin's concise yet profound philological remarks and criticisms revealing the depth of Calvin's engagement with the text and his foresight and interpretation, which often aligns with later, more modern biblical criticism. In his editorial process, Anderson meticulously compares Calvin's translation with the original Hebrew texts, the Septuagint, Vulgate, and Jerome's versions. This comparative approach not only validates Calvin's translation, but also underlines the consistency of his interpretations with the textual nuances of the original Hebrew. Anderson consults a wide array of critical works on the Psalms, 
drawing from a rich reservoir of scholarship to reinforce and contextualize Calvin's interpretations. Through this, Anderson demonstrates the enduring relevance and accuracy of Calvin's work, noting that many interpretations now common in contemporary scholarship were pioneered by Calvin. Anderson expresses gratitude to several colleagues who assisted him, underscoring the collaborative effort behind the publication. The extensive annotations and revisions indicate a commitment to scholarly rigor and precision. The inclusion of facsimiles of the original title pages and comprehensive indices in the final volume reflects the depth and breadth of the editorial endeavor. Overall, Anderson's work is a tribute to Calvin's enduring legacy as a biblical scholar. It emphasizes the meticulous care with which the Psalms were translated and interpreted, accentuating Calvin's methodological precision and his significant influence on subsequent biblical interpretation. Anderson's notes not only illuminate Calvin's contributions, but also serve as a critical resource for understanding the Psalms' complex theological, linguistic, and cultural dimensions. Moreover, in the dedication of his translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses to Edward de Vere, Arthur Golding articulates a thoughtful defense and rationale for addressing a secular nobleman, rather than a clergy member, on matters of religious and moral instruction. He preempts potential criticism by acknowledging the usual association of spiritual matters with the clergy, but then firmly affirms the universal applicability of the Holy Scriptures. Golding debates that the teachings of the Holy Ghost, as conveyed through the sacred texts, are pertinent and accessible to all individuals, irrespective of their social standing, profession, or age. Golding's personal dedication to De Vere is framed within the context of his own arduous legal struggles, which have consumed much of his time and impeded the timely completion of his work. He mentions these personal tribulations as a way to assert his commitment and the effort placed into ensuring the quality and substance of his translation, which he hopes compensates for any perceived delay. Interestingly, Golding anticipates and addresses what he imagines might be De Vere's expectations. Narratives of heroic conquests, political treatises, or accounts of chivalric exploits, all topics aligning with the interests and responsibilities of a young nobleman of the time. However, Golding elevates the discussion by highlighting that he is presenting the Earl with themes of much greater significance, true religion, godliness, and virtue. He positions these virtues as foundational to the effective governance and stability of any society and as the ultimate measure of nobility. In doing so, Golding elevates the moral and spiritual over the temporal and mundane, suggesting that the pursuit of religious and moral excellence is the highest calling and the truest form of nobility, offering the most meaningful service to God, sovereign, and country. Furthermore, Golding presents a compelling appeal for the nobleman to deeply engage with and uphold the Word of God. Golding indicates that the scriptures are not merely religious texts, but the quintessential guide for life, providing the only true wisdom and knowledge. He vividly describes the Bible as a lantern for feet and a light for steps, suggesting that without it, even the most intellectually or nobly born are essentially wandering in darkness. He insists that all aspects of one's life, from personal thought to public duty, should be steeped in the divine teachings. Golding maintains the heavy burden of responsibility borne by those of high status like De Vere. He portrays them as societal beacons whose personal virtue or vice can significantly sway the public. If De Vere and others like him adhere to a godly path, they can become bulwarks of their country, guiding and influencing others towards righteousness. Conversely, Golding warns that any deviation into hypocrisy or heresy, particularly among the elite, could have disastrous ripple effects throughout the realm. In a tone both admonitory and hopeful, Golding implores De Vere to consider his influential role and the legacy he might leave. In addition, the dedication is a broader cultural commentary, 
reflecting the tumultuous religious landscape of the time. Golding expresses acute awareness of the various threats posed by deceitful doctrines and the manipulative tactics of those opposed to Protestant reforms. His reference to the obstinate and stubborn-hearted papiste reflects the intense sectarian conflict of the period. Through his letter, Golding seeks not just to counsel De Vere, but to fortify him against the spiritual and ideological battles of their age, advocating for a steadfast commitment to faith and virtue amidst a world fraught with moral and spiritual peril. Further, Golding articulates a wide-sweeping critique of the threats to Christian faith during his time. He begins by addressing atheists and Epicureans, characterizing them as harmful to the bedrock of religion. The atheists deny God's very existence, while the Epicureans undermine divine governance by assuming God is indifferent to human affairs. Golding disputes that such beliefs seek to eradicate religious reverence, guilt, and the fear of God from human hearts. Golding describes morally flexible individuals as parasites that sprout from these irreligious ideologies. These charlatans adapt their professed beliefs to suit prevailing winds, showing loyalty neither to principle nor truth. Among the most dangerous are flatterers, these priests of Hammon, who corrupt the integrity of those in power by falsely assuring them of divine lineage, inflating their egos to believe in their own godhood, thus leading them away from genuine faith. Golding's critique extends to the internal decay within the church, where hypocrites shallowly embrace the facade of faith, yet belie it through immoral actions. Such conduct not only tarnishes the reputation of the church, but repulses those who might otherwise accept its teachings. Besides, he notes that societal misunderstandings of the gospel are problematic, with some misattributing the revelation of sin by the gospel to the gospel itself, much like blaming a person who reveals a crime for the crime committed. This, in Golding's view, causes scandal and turns people away from its truth. Notably, Golding points to the distractions and temptations inherent in positions of power and privilege. Wealth, status, and the associated pleasures can lead to a dangerous sense of self-sufficiency and negligence of spiritual commitments. Additionally, Golding acknowledges that beyond external perils, there exists an inner struggle with original sin, an inborn inclination toward evil, which persistently lures humans away from their faith. He views original sin as the single most potent force against spiritual integrity, an inescapable flaw that can only be remedied by divine intervention, transcending all worldly wisdom and healing. Also, Golding presents a fervent argument against the pernicious influence of papistry, which he perceives as an enemy armed with various stratagems designed to harm. Golding's discourse employs a vivid metaphor, likening the doctrine of papistry to a destructive poison that not only afflicts the physical body, but also imperils the soul, leading to the dire prospect of eternal damnation. He vehemently points out that even a minimal exposure to papist ideology can render individuals less capable of embodying true virtue and piety, comparable to the way physical impairment hinders a person's ability in worldly affairs. Moreover, Golding claims that deep immersion in papist beliefs corrupts a person to the core, embedding itself in the very heart and compromising their capacity to serve God loyally, abide by the rule of their sovereign, or function as a beneficial member of society. For such individuals to redeem themselves, Golding suggests, they must undertake a profound and transformative shedding of their tainted beliefs, much like a snake discarding its old skin in a symbolic rebirth. With earnest conviction, Golding recommends that Lord de Vere peruse a particular book, which he holds in extraordinary regard for its illustrious origins and sacred content. Authored under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit by esteemed figures such as prophets, priests, and kings, the book's authenticity is further affirmed by Christ himself. The book's central theme lays out the path to life and eternal salvation, 
offering guidance on the principles of genuine religion, sanctity, allegiance, and integrity. These universal truths are entwined with intricate allegories, parables, and prophetic utterances. Distinctive in its literary approach, the book reiterates heartfelt prayers and expressions of gratitude. It addresses the divine through a series of implorations that invite a deep and sincere engagement with God. The text is characterized by its fragmented sentences and abrupt phrases, suggesting a prayer's spontaneous and emotional outpouring, where joy, sorrow, or physical frailty may temporarily halt the speaker. Golding assures his reader that any seeming obscurities within the text can be elucidated by those who authentically disconnect from earthly distractions during prayer, by ascending spiritually and presenting themselves with a pure heart before God's grace. Individuals may seek the ineffable comfort and redemption for their souls. Last but not least, Golding extols the merits of the psalm book he has translated, which includes a Latin commentary by Calvin, a notable theologian and minister from Geneva. Golding commends Calvin's work as exceedingly beneficial to Christian society, ranking this volume highly for its rich content and robust teaching, second only to Calvin's seminal work, Institutions. With a careful touch, Golding contends that this book distinguishes itself not by ornate language, but by deep substance and thoughtful insights reflective of a writer deeply moved and guided by the Spirit of God. Unlike texts bloated with rhetorical flourishes, this book is deemed full of pithy and grounded matter, displaying practical wisdom shaped by real-world trials. Golding openly delivers the translations into De Vere's patronage with a modest confession that despite his earnest attempt, imperfections may be present given the magnitude of the task. He extends an invitation to those grounded in the scriptures to make necessary corrections prioritizing the welfare of the church over his own pride. Deeply committed to serving the common believer rather than appealing to learned elites, Golding's translation strives for clarity and accessibility, with the hope that it will contribute to the spiritual defense against false teachings. As Golding's letter continues, he exhorts Devere to emulate the virtues extolled within the pages of the translated texts. He proclaims that a life led in accordance with the divine word is tantamount to valorously combating sin, akin to the mythical Greek hero Achilles battling his foes. Golding draws a parallel to the Trojan War's mythical endurance, viewing the Christian's moral journey as a comparable lifelong battle to protect the soul's salvation, likened to the legendary Helen of Troy. In closing, Golding extends a sincere hope for De Vere's prosperity in his familial and civic life. He looks to the wisdom of De Vere's Nestor advisor to guide him rightly. He finishes with well wishes for a blissful marriage and legacy, painting De Vere's conjugal love with the same fidelity and devotion as in the myth of Saex and Alcyone. It's in this godly harmony and mutual aspiration that Golding envisions De Vere's life unfolding to the pleasure of both spouses and the glory of God. Besides, in the preface to his commentaries on the Psalms, Calvin shares a candid reflection on his journey from reluctance to commitment in writing these religious discourses. Initially, he saw no need to publish his teachings, believing that his lectures within a small circle sufficed for his educational responsibilities. His hesitation was further bolstered by the esteemed works of Martin Bucer and Wolfangus Musculus, whose comprehensive and insightful treatises on the Psalms Calvin revered, feeling that their efforts had adequately covered the theological landscape of the Psalms. Despite his reluctance, Calvin faced persistent requests from peers who valued his insights and feared the loss of his lectures to obscurity. Moreover, the threat of unauthorized publication of his teachings spurred him into action. He wished to ensure that if his interpretations were to reach a wider audience, they would do so under his guidance and with his consent. Calvin's initial foray into writing the commentaries was experimental, starting with a single psalm. The positive reception of this trial and the encouragement of his close friends motivated him to continue. 
As he dived deeper into the work, Calvin recognized its value, not only as a theological endeavor, but also as a personal spiritual journey, enhancing his own understanding and relationship with the Psalms. Ultimately, Calvin's preface is a reflection on the intersection of duty, peer influence, and personal growth. It reveals his initial hesitation, influenced by respect for his predecessors, and his eventual realization of the unique contribution his commentaries could make. His work on the Psalms became a fulfilling task, providing significant insights and guidance to readers navigating the complexities of these ancient songs and prayers. Through this process, Calvin's commentaries on the Psalms emerged as a testament to the enduring relevance and personal impact of theological scholarship. Additionally, Calvin reveres the Psalms as an exhaustive mirror of the human soul, terming it an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He sees this book of the Bible as uniquely comprehensive, capturing every conceivable human emotion. For Calvin, the Psalms go beyond detailing divine commandments. They invite personal introspection and facilitate a deep spiritual self-examination. He views them as a conduit through which believers may reflect on their infirmities and sins, thus eschewing hypocrisy and embracing genuine self-awareness. Calvin repeats the instructional nature of the Psalms in guiding believers in prayer. He posits that the depth of understanding the Psalms is directly proportional to one's knowledge of celestial doctrine. The Psalms stir up the sense of need and instill faith in God's promises, foundational elements for genuine prayer. They depict the struggle between doubt and faith, encouraging believers to persevere in their petitions to God until they achieve a victorious faith. Also, he lauds the Psalms for their role in teaching praise. According to Calvin, no other book provides as rich or detailed instructions for praising God, nor stirs up the desire to engage in this practice as effectively. The Psalms celebrate divine deliverance and providence, teaching believers to see their afflictions as part of God's sovereign plan, thereby making even the harshest trials bearable and meaningful. Moreover, Calvin underlines the psalm's comprehensive guidance on leading a holy and righteous life while bearing life's inevitable crosses. He notes that the psalms teach the importance of fully relying on God and finding complete happiness in Him. Most importantly, they illuminate the path to eternal salvation, magnifying the significance of sin's remission as the key to reconciling with God and securing lasting peace. For Calvin, the psalms are indispensable, providing both the comfort of God's promises and the detailed guidance necessary for a devout Christian life. Furthermore, Calvin shares a profound personal reflection on how the tribulations and divine encounters in his life have significantly shaped his understanding and exposition of biblical texts, particularly underscoring the Psalms of David. Calvin sees his own struggles and spiritual journey as deeply connected to the experiences of David, the shepherd king and revered author of many Psalms. Despite acknowledging the wide gulf between David's holy virtues and his own human frailties, Calvin finds solace and inspiration in the similarities of their spiritual battles and devotion to God. Calvin credits his hardships with providing him a unique insight into the scriptures, enabling him to apply the ancient wisdom of the biblical authors to contemporary issues. He sees his role not merely as an interpreter of text, but as a participant in the ongoing spiritual narrative that these texts embody. The resonance of David's faith, patience, fervor, and integrity deeply moves Calvin often leading him to mourn his spiritual shortcomings while simultaneously driving him to aspire to such godliness. In addition, Calvin's unexpected journey from law to theology, initially a decision against his will but later embraced as divine providence, emphasizes a life transformed by God's intervention. He vividly describes his early obstinate devotion to the superstitions of popery and how a sudden intense conversion experience realigned his path towards a fervent pursuit of true godliness and evangelical preaching. This transformation was not merely intellectual, but deeply spiritual, 
affecting the very core of his being and his understanding of his divine calling. Through his reflective narrative, Calvin presents a humbling account of his life and ministry, marked by divine guidance, a heartfelt identification with biblical figures, and an unyielding commitment to faith and teaching. His story is a testament to the power of divine calling and the profound impact of Scripture on a receptive heart. Further, Calvin recounts his unexpected journey to becoming a prominent figure in the Protestant Reformation, marked by an initial desire for solitude and anonymity. Calvin describes himself as naturally unpolished and bashful, seeking seclusion and a life away from public attention. Despite his attempts, he found himself continually sought after for his insights into purer doctrine, indicating an early recognition of his understanding and potential influence. Calvin's life took a significant turn with the burning of faithful and holy persons in France, an event that drew widespread condemnation and was a catalyst for his active involvement in religious discourse. The French court circulated misleading reports claiming that only dangerous, heretical individuals were executed to quell the international outrage and continue their oppressive actions unchallenged. Disturbed by these deceptive tactics and the injustice being meted out to his fellow believers, Calvin felt compelled to counteract these narratives. He saw his silence as a form of cowardice and treachery, leading him to publish Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Institutes were initially a concise summary of Christian doctrine, intended to correct the falsehoods spread about the persecuted faithful and elicit international support and empathy for them. This work was not meant for personal fame or recognition, as evidenced by Calvin's departure from Basel and maintenance of his anonymity concerning the text's authorship. Through this act, Calvin transitioned from a seeker of solitude into a defender of the faith, using his writing as a tool for advocacy and truth, shaping his role in the broader context of the Reformation and religious discourse. Besides, Calvin's recounting of his reluctant stay in Geneva serves as a pivotal moment in his life, accentuating his internal conflict and the divine sense of duty that ultimately guided his actions. Initially desiring a life dedicated to private study and scholarly pursuits in Strasbourg, Calvin's plans were abruptly changed upon his arrival in Geneva. His presence was inadvertently revealed, leading William Farrell to implore him to assist in the Reformation efforts in the city. Farrell's impassioned plea, culminating in a dire imprecation, deeply affected Calvin, making him feel as if it were a divine command to stay. Calvin describes the tumultuous state of Geneva, freshly independent from the papacy, but embroiled in political and religious discord. Despite his natural inclination towards a quieter, more scholarly life, he found himself at the heart of the city's conflicts. He faced challenges from various fronts, including opposition from Anabaptists and other factions within the city which he referred to as part of his early training in confronting and managing disputes. Throughout the narrative, Calvin's humility and introspection are evident. He acknowledges his timid, soft, and pusillanimous disposition, which made the sudden immersion into Geneva's contentious environment all the more challenging. The psychological and spiritual turmoil he experienced is palpable as he grapples with his reluctance and perceived duty. The culmination of these events leads to his temporary banishment from Geneva, which he reflects upon with a complex mixture of relief and perhaps a hint of regret. Through this self-reflective account, Calvin provides insight into the personal sacrifices and the sense of divine calling that shaped his contributions to the Protestant Reformation, portraying a man led by faith yet burdened by the weight of his responsibilities. Additionally, Calvin reflects a deep internal struggle between a desire for personal tranquility and the sense of duty toward public ecclesiastical service. Initially intent on leading a private life, free from the burden and cares of any public charge. 
Calvin was compelled to reassume a public role due to the persuasive efforts of Martin Bucer and previously by Farrell. Bucer's argument, which likened Calvin's reluctance to the biblical story of Jonah, deeply affected him, leading him back to a path of active teaching and participation in religious debates, despite his natural inclination for privacy. Calvin's narrative is not just a personal recounting, but also a reflection of the tumultuous times marked by political and religious upheaval. The imperial assemblies he mentions likely refer to significant religious dialogues of the time, which Calvin, as a leading Protestant figure, was drawn into. His participation was reluctant but deemed necessary, illustrating the tension between personal desires and perceived obligations. The latter part of the passage digs into the specific context of Calvin's return to his pastoral duties, driven by a severe civic turmoil that had threatened the stability and well-being of his community. Calvin credits divine intervention for the quelling of these disturbances, which led to his return. Despite his deep-seated love and concern for the church's welfare, he expresses profound emotional distress over resuming a role that exposed him to public scrutiny and responsibility. This emotional toll affirms the gravity with which Calvin viewed his duties and the sacrifices entailed in leadership roles during a time of significant religious conflict. His decision, made with grief, tears, great anxiety, and distress, reflects the complex interplay of fear, duty, and devotion that characterized Calvin's leadership in life, providing a vivid window into the personal sacrifices inherent in public religious leadership during the Reformation. Moreover, Calvin, in his introspective narrative, compares his life's tumultuous journey with that of King David's, as recorded in biblical lore. He details a relentless series of conflicts and trials, both external and internal, that he endured throughout his ministry. Like David, Calvin faced continual wars against external enemies and was also deeply troubled by the treachery and wickedness within his own community. He was beset by adversaries seeking to undermine the church's discipline and order, driven by their own sinful desires, be it reckless libertines, the spiritually apathetic, or those corrupted by greed and ambition. Calvin's recounting is vivid with the imagery of a beleaguered leader, constantly at war to uphold the sanctity and order of the church. He describes perilous times when he had to physically confront the threats posed by Satan and his minions, putting his own life at risk to defend the church. The struggle was not only against those who openly opposed him, but also against the subversive elements within the church, attempting to erode its foundations from within. Despite the continuous strife and the painful outcomes, including the tragic demise of some of his most fervent adversaries, Calvin's narrative is one of unwavering commitment and resilience. He expresses a poignant longing for peace and the well-being of others, even those who opposed him, reflecting a deep-rooted desire for reconciliation and communal harmony. However, the unyielding nature of his opponents often left him with no choice but to engage in severe disciplinary actions. Through his reflections, Calvin portrays the life of a reformer as one fraught with challenges and opposition, requiring an unshakable faith and a steadfast commitment to principle. His experiences serve as a testament to the enduring spirit required to lead and protect a community of believers amidst a turbulent and often hostile world. Furthermore, Calvin's account is a poignant expression of the turmoil and distress he endured due to relentless attacks on his ministry and character. He faced a barrage of slanderous accusations, which he found particularly excruciating because they persisted despite his repeated vindication. Calvin was deeply troubled by the nature of these attacks, especially those that misconstrued his teachings on divine providence and predestination as implying that God is the author of sin. He dismisses these claims as absurd, yet acknowledges their traction among those who revel in such calumnies. The personal nature of the attacks compounded Calvin's distress, 
as they often came from those within the Christian community who professed to be his brothers in faith. This betrayal is likened to the biblical laments of David, betrayed by a close friend, asserting the deep, personal, and spiritual betrayal Calvin felt. Beyond theological accusations, Calvin also refutes claims of personal greed and luxury, noting his modest lifestyle and expressing a wish to rid himself of the burdensome power and influence attributed to him. Calvin sees the root of these attacks in a desire among his detractors to undermine the authority of Christ's servants, thereby creating a moral and doctrinal chaos that allows them to live without accountability. His response is not just a defense of his own integrity, but a lament for the divisive and destructive effects these attacks have on the unity and truth of the Christian community. Through his reflections, Calvin presents a narrative of steadfast faith and integrity amidst a storm of falsehoods and malice, highlighting his commitment to truth and his disheartened view of the pervasive envy and hostility that threatens the church's integrity. In addition, Calvin examines the adversities he faced from both overt and covert detractors. He begins by referencing hypocritical mockers and feasts, drawing from Psalm 35, 16 to encompass not only those seeking to satisfy their immediate needs through sycophancy, but also individuals who maliciously use deceit to gain favor with the powerful. These adversities have somewhat hardened him, yet he admits to feeling deeply wounded when the insolence of his adversaries escalates. Calvin's struggles extend beyond his immediate surroundings to a distant land, where a metaphorical storm of opposition arose, incited by a few but growing to involve many idle individuals. These critics, rather than contributing to the church's mission, occupy themselves with disputes that hinder those working towards the church's edification. Particularly distressing for Calvin is the behavior of internal enemies of the church who, despite proclaiming allegiance to the gospel of Christ, vehemently oppose him over doctrinal differences concerning the nature of Christ's presence in the sacrament. They attack with a fervor that, in his view, surpasses even the animosity directed towards the church's explicit adversaries. In lamenting the cruel ingratitude of these individuals, Calvin indicates the irony of being attacked by those who should be allies, noting that any trace of humanity would temper their hostility, especially considering the fierce opposition he faces from Papists. He finds solace in paralleling his experiences with those of King David, who, despite his contributions to his people, was met with baseless hatred. This comparison not only provides Calvin with comfort, but also deepens his understanding and emotional connection to the Psalms, framing his struggles within the context of a broader spiritual battle and a lineage of faith under fire. Through these reflections, Calvin reveals the personal and spiritual anguish that marked his journey as a reformer, finding a measure of peace in the shared experiences of biblical figures. Last but not least, Calvin reveals a deeply personal approach to the biblical text, maintaining that his expositions on the internal emotions of David and others stem from a place of intimate understanding and experience. He addresses his readers with a humility, acknowledging that while his efforts to elucidate these sacred writings may not have completely satisfied his own aspirations, they are nonetheless undertaken with a genuine commitment to the spiritual nourishment of the faithful. Calvin invites his audience to assess his work with fairness, basing their judgment on the practical edification they receive from his commentaries. Calvin's method is characterized by simplicity and restraint. He consciously avoids the rhetorical flourish and contentious debates that might distract from the core message of the scripture. His reluctance to engage in refuting others' opinions is not from a lack of capability, but a deliberate choice to focus on clear, straightforward teaching. He concedes that while a more disputatious or ornate approach might have garnered wider acclaim or interest, his primary concern lies in the spiritual building up of the church, aligning his work with the greater glory of God rather than personal accolade. 
He is acutely aware of the potential allure of accumulating extensive scholarly materials for the sake of fame or intellectual vanity. Yet, Calvin steadfastly commits to a path less trodden, but more fruitful in divine purpose, prioritizing the clear, accessible exposition of God's word above all. His closing thoughts are a humble supplication that the divine grace will make his endeavors fruitful, reflecting a deep-seated belief that the true value of his work lies in its capacity to foster spiritual growth and understanding among believers, a desire planted in his heart by God himself. In conclusion, the book of Psalms, as understood by James Anderson, is a profound collection that stands at the intersection of divine inspiration and human expression. Anderson would recognize the Psalms as a tapestry of human emotions, capturing the depths of despair, the heights of joy, and everything in between, all within the context of a relationship with the divine. This collection of lyrical poems serves not only as a spiritual touchstone, but also as a historical record and prophetic text reflecting the journey and faith of the Jewish people, while also speaking universally to the human condition across ages. Besides, in his approach, Anderson would likely point out the multifaceted nature of the Psalms, their historical significance, intimate personal reflections, and their anticipatory elements of messianic and future events. The literary brilliance of the Psalms lies in their poetic devices and structures, which enhance their emotional resonance and spiritual depth. Anderson would admire this literary artistry, but also reiterate the psalm's role in worship and personal devotion, recognizing their capacity to provide comfort, moral guidance, and a medium for prayer and praise. Additionally, Anderson's analysis of Calvin's commentary on the psalms would acknowledge the substantial shift Calvin made towards a more disciplined, textually grounded hermeneutic. While appreciating Calvin's rigorous examination of the Hebrew text and intent to understand the psalm's original meanings, Anderson might critique Calvin for not delving as deeply into the text's prophetic and spiritual dimensions due to a cautious stance against mystical interpretations. Despite these critiques, he would view Calvin's commentary as a valuable resource for both academic and practical purposes, contributing significantly to Christian doctrine and personal spiritual growth. Anderson's comprehensive treatment of the Psalms and Calvin's work reflects a deep respect for their enduring legacy in religious, cultural, and literary domains.